just a little bit. Thank you. Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture about a man who was driven, driven. He was at the outer edge, the extreme of drivenness, so much that he was actually controlled by forces outside himself. Most of us will never likely deal with or even observe this kind of drivenness, but I want us to look at this account to see how we, do, how we deal with drivenness and how we deal with some of these issues. And I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 8. Luke 8, it's on page 840 in the Bible in front of you. Luke 8, starting with verse 26. As we continue this series about Jesus. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Weird, you say. It's outside the box, kind of a strange story, outside the norm. We see a man who's driven. This man was at the extreme. He was driven by an evil spirit. We sometimes call this demon possession. Now, this is not as simple as black and white as sometimes we like to think. Evil spirits, or fallen angels, or demons as we call them, are real. They are real. The Bible talks about them in many places. We need not fear demons if we have Jesus in our life and we're submitted to Jesus. 
But we can, by allowing sin to dominate certain areas of our lives, open ourselves up to demonic influences. There are degrees of demonic influence, the most severe, which is demon possession, where the demon has total control over a human being. A, a better term is demonized by degrees, and it's real. I've dealt with people who've been demonized at different levels, some totally possessed by demons. This man somehow had become demonized and possessed by demons, and he was now, says he was driven. He was controlled, driven. The followers of Jesus, it's interesting, the followers of Jesus had just survived this huge storm on the Sea of Galilee. Two weeks ago, we looked at that, at the perfect storm. They'd just been through this trauma of the perfect storm, and they come on, and what do they find? They're met on the shore near a graveyard and caves by a naked, crazy man. Now, while everyone who's demonized is probably driven, not everyone who is driven is demonized. We may have a hard time. I, I want to look at this passage and figure out not necessarily, we'll look, at, we'll look at the demonization, but I want to talk about how we as people can be driven. We as people can be driven. What drives us? Make, what makes us driven? What's the driving force behind what we do? Freud said the driving force in people is pleasure. Someone else said the driving force in us is power. What drives us is having power. Fromm postulated that people are driven by love. Frankel, the philosopher, said meaning is a driving force. For others, the driving force is ego or self-actualization, self-realization, self-satisfaction. And I think we need to ask the question, if we can identify with this story at all, which is way outside the box for most of us, is what drives you? What drives you? Are you driven? What are some characteristics and consequences of drivenness? Every part of the Bible has an application that is applicable to us. And I want us to, to tease out some of those lessons about what drives us today. What can we learn from this unusual story? And it is, it is unusual. It's okay to say this is weird. Why did they put this in? Because there's some lessons. First of all, when one is driven, they are removed from home and family. Removed from home and family. Verse 27, he was not living in a house, but living in the tombs. We may not be demonized, but we can be driven by a lot of different things. Business, a successful career, recreation, diversion, a particular relationship. And any or all of these aspects of our life can become so important to us that they actually take us away from home and family. Is there anything in your life that drives you and takes you away from family? Driven people are typically abnormally busy, usually too busy for the pursuit of ordinary human relationships, marriage, family, and friendships. God may or may not even be in the picture. Driven people operate on the misconception that busyness is the sign of, a, of success and of personal importance. If I'm just busy, Often these people will complain about their responsibility, the busy schedule, all the appointments, long hours, no day off, no vacation long time, for a long time. And of course, these people usually let everybody know how busy they are. Drivenness can actually remove us 
from home and family. This is not the extreme of the man in our story, but it's real, nonetheless. When one is driven, they are, secondly, stripped of dignity. Stripped of dignity. This man was naked and stripped not only of his clothes, but he was stripped of his personality, his character, his dignity, and his worth, everything. In our drivenness, we can very easily compromise our values or our character, even our dignity, to reach goals. We sometimes will compromise truth to live a lie, believing everything is well as long as I just keep going and I'm busy. Driven people have little time for honesty. They're preoccupied with success. They have no time to stop and see if their inner person is keeping pace with the outer person. And then you develop gaps in internal integrity. Some will compromise truth to reach a goal. We've seen in recent years politicians, professors, even writers who have been caught in deceit, compromising truth, inventing a war record to get elected, plagiarizing sections of a whole book, or, or em, embroidering details on a resume to get a job. One author from Breakpoint writes this, in the late 20th century, this problem with truth was exacerbated by the rise of postmodern deconstructionism on college campuses. Postmodernists teach that truth is not merely irrelevant. They just believe truth does not exist. We've lived through that deconstruction of truth. And now it doesn't matter. Basically, some have come to the conclusion there's no independent reality and there's no basis, therefore, for making judgments about truth or falsity. They think truth claims are just constructs of dominant groups, the creations of the powerful. Truth, we'll talk more about truth in a little bit. Drivenness, being stripped of dignity and character, integrity and truth. When one is driven, let her see one lives among the dead. It says he lived in the tombs. Living where there's no true life, no true life. We're not talking about physical life in our lives, but spiritual life. How alive are you spiritually? How, and I'm not asking you to quantify it, but how alive are you spiritually? Is your spirit alive in a relationship with God? Is it living? Or are relationships with other people just a purely physical realm or superficial friendship? And it's more important than a living, dynamic relationship with the living God. What's the priority? Life versus death. What, what brings you fulfillment? What brings you fulfillment? Francis Schaeffer suggested that there are two operating principles when self-sufficient, self, self, in self-fulfillment. And I think all of us can, could relate to each, each of these. The self-fulfillment comes with the pursuit of personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. And that's personal peace is defined as just to be left alone, not to be troubled by the trouble of other people, whether it's across the world or across the city, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Well, I don't know if you can identify with that. I don't want to deal with this, that, and the other. I just want to have my personal peace. 
Then there's affluence, defined as an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity. Life is made up of things and things and more things. Success is judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. It's all about having more, more. Stuff doesn't bring life, it's dead, it's inanimate. Gods that are no different than carved statues of wood and stone. We bow down and we say, oh, thou great BMW, bring me fulfillment. <laughs> oh, dream house, give me everything I've ever wanted. You know, we can worship inanimate objects, driven, driven, living for dead things, driven, living among the dead. This guy was living among the dead. When driven, one letter D, resists God. In verse 28, the man said, leave me alone. What do you want with me? He didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Do you ever resist God? I do. Is it my way or his way? His will or my will? Who's, who's in charge? There's a constant battle between wills, resisting God. Sometimes we say, I believe in Jesus, but my ambitions and goals are more important than Jesus. Some are Christians only in name only. They're called nominal Christians. Mark McCloskey, in his book, Tell It Often and Tell It Well, describes the word nominal. We hear that once in a while. He says the term nominal is derived from the Latin term nominales, meaning belonging to a name. So a Christian nominalist is one who claims the name Christian but has no authentic, personal, sin-forgiving, and life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. His allegiance to Jesus is in name, not in heart. These are described as professors, not possessors, of Jesus Christ. While claiming the title of Christian, they have all failed to comprehend the reality of a personal commitment to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He says, one of my friends described his nominalist roommate. He had all the right words, but none of the music in his heart. Wow. The nominalist has been spiritually inoculated. So exposed to what he believes is true Christianity that he reasons there's nothing more beyond this present experience. Glad that Christianity asks nothing more of them than church attendance or intellectual agreement with certain doctrines. No sense of need. Anything more would be fanaticism. There's especially the danger of this for those who have walked with Jesus for a lifetime. Question is, am I just a nominalist or am I passionate, passionately in love with Jesus? Driven, resist God. Letter E, when one is driven, one breaks the chains that confines Breaking the rules, violating the boundaries. As parents, we set boundaries for our children for their good health and well-being to keep them from harming themselves. God, in like manner, has set up boundaries for our good. A driven person will push those boundaries, break the rules to their own destruction. I want to take some time this morning. I, I haven't talked much about this particular thing. This issue has to do with truth. Has to do with truth. Boundaries are based on truth. We must have truth. 
We have a sign out front, if you haven't seen it. It says, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. We have it on our website. One can speak the truth without love, but one cannot truly love without speaking truth. Let me say that again. One can speak the truth without love, but one cannot truly love without speaking truth. Speaking the truth in love is my motto, personally, and my mission. I want to talk for a minute about truth and the issue of, I haven't talked about this yet, transgenderism. Transgenderism. It's all over the news. You haven't seen it. Transgenderism. Transgenderism exists because of gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria, according to American Psychiatric Association, is a psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. Okay? In other words, I can't be a boy and think I'm a boy, think I'm something else, or a girl and think I'm something, whatever. It's an incongruence between those two things. Simply put, it's a mental illness that cannot reconcile truth with perception. It's a mental illness cannot reconcile truth with perception. And let, let, me, let me give you another example of something like this. If someone has, has an eating disorder and their skin and bones because they won't eat and they look in the mirror and they think they're fat, okay, that's a dysphoria. That's a, a gap between perception and reality. Truth is, is you're fine. You don't need to starve yourself because you're not overweight and fat and obese, whatever. There, that's an example we've all come to know. Gender dysphoria is the same thing in a, in a way. Now, it's a, very, it's a very complicated topic. I just want to cover some things. We need to have answers for that. The truth is... And I could be arrested in the UK for saying this. The truth is there are two genders. Two genders. And my physiology determines my gender. Not how I feel, not how I perceive myself, not how others, not the peer pressure that says maybe you are being the wrong gender. It's my physiology what I was born as. God created us all special. Read Psalm 139. We have that on our website. Every one of us was created special by God, and we are who we are. Two genders. Gender dysphoria is an illness. It's a sickness. Now, how do we as a church, how do we as a church deal with illness or sickness? Do you condemn, point the fingers, and say they're sick, all oh, those terrible people? We love them. We pray for them. We accept them. We don't accept the illness any more than someone who comes in with a cancer or some kind of a sickness. We don't say, well, I just got to put up with it. I guess that's just the way it goes. No, we pray for healing. We love them. We care for them. When someone is sick, we pray for them, care for them. Jesus came to the sick. Luke 5, 31, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. We are called to have compassion, 
for those struggling. At the same time, we must offer truth for healing. Truth for healing. Finding our identity, not in something out there, but in Jesus Christ. We don't have time to, to do a lot of this, address this comprehensively, but we always must go to the truth. And the root cause goes back. And I, I, I've said this before, and I want us to be aware of this. The root cause goes back to a, a relatively recent term or construct. This phrase was unknown until about 12, 15 years ago. That phrase is called sexual orientation. Sexual orientation. And truth states, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, there is no such thing as sexual orientation. There is only sin orientation. Let me say it again. There's no such thing as sexual orientation. There is sin orientation. And all of us have it. We all have sin orientation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Sexual orientation was an attempt to take one particular sin, just one, homosexual sin, and justify it as acceptable because, quote, unquote, I was made that way. We were all conceived in sin. We all are sinners. We could justify every kind of sin we can do and commit if we justify it that way. We all have sin orientation. Sexual orientation is just one of those sins. Now sexual orientation is being used, and I, I saw this coming. I saw this coming. It's being used now to justify pedophilia. Sex with children of any age. The Minnesota State Legislature, just this week, just two or three days ago, narrowly defeated a law legalizing pedophilia. The wording stated, that is my sexual orientation. The United Nations attempted to pass another edict saying, it's just sexual orientation. They're called MAP, Minor Attracted Persons, MAPs. It's been going that way. When you, when you justify sexual orientation, instead of calling it sin orientation, you can justify anything. That's where this is headed and has been heading for a long time. Where is the church in this? We need to be aware. We need to pray. And out of this sexual orientation and this gender dysphoria, all the things that have happened, we sit as a church and we say, what do we do now? What do we do? I've shared this before that in, in the city of Eau Claire, I spoke at a city council meeting against this. They passed a law, it's a, it's a, it's a law in the, in the city of Eau Claire, city limits, that if you are a licensed counselor and you are counseling a minor and they come to you with gender confusion, gender dysphoria, it is illegal to counsel them back to their biological sex. It's illegal. You can be prosecuted. That's been on the books for five years. It's unreal. 
It's unreal. The slippery slope ends who knows where. Truth. We must hold the truth, truth about God and truth about humanity. We break those chains and we, we destroy humanity. The driven person lives in fear. Some people are driven because they're afraid to stop or slow down. Some are just driven by fear and they're alone. This man had been driven to solitary places. In this desperate situation, Jesus comes, okay? Here, here's the hope, okay? You can't get any worse than this guy, okay? Totally destitute, out of control, cannot control his destiny. He's naked, he's driven, he's bleeding, he's whatever, out of control. And who comes? Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Jesus. And if you can identify with drivenness in any capacity today, the answer is Jesus. How is one delivered? First of all, recognizing who Jesus is. This man immediately recognized Jesus as a son of the Most High God. He said, you are God. That was the first crucial step. We are called to recognize that Jesus was and is God. He's the Lord over all things. He identified the source. He said, what is your name? He called it out. It was legion, a multitude of demons. Why are you driven? Thirdly, confessing. This man confessed his drivenness. He said, I'm driven. I have a problem. Then he allowed Jesus to be the leader of his life, submitting totally to God. Make Jesus Lord. This drivenness that we're talking about most likely doesn't happen in the physical realm. But I'll tell you, if you've watched any, any of the demonstrations, any of the demonstrations, any of the news coverage of people that are militantly, militantly pro-abortion, militantly pro-homosexual marriage, gay marriage, pro-transgenderism, you can see demonic influence. How do we fight that? We, we can't fight that at, by passing laws. Praise God for the, for the places that are passing laws against some of these activities and some of these actions. But it's not, the battle is not in the physical realm. It's in the spiritual realm. That's why people say, where, where has the church been? Where is the church? Have we allowed this slide to happen? I don't want to lay a guilt trip on everybody and say, oh, what have we done? The question is not what's happened in the past. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? How do we minister life to people who are broken and confused and, yes, demonized? How do we handle that? Jesus delivered them. And when he was delivered, we find, first of all, we find the man sitting at Jesus' feet which denotes a submission to the leadership of Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. Secondly, his dignity was restored. He was clothed and dressed. And that represents for us a restoration of values, a character, integrity, and forgiveness, and worth. When we're delivered, he puts us in our right mind. He says he was in his right mind, sane and whole and clear thinking. Restoration of truth and perspective and right judgment. 
now able to see things as they really are, know who we are. And then he desired to follow Jesus. He, he begged for the opportunity to follow Jesus. He returned to his home and family and he testified to the power of Jesus. He said, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is the path that needs to be followed for people to be delivered. And when we're looking at people that are blinded by sin, blinded by transgenderism, blinded by whatever, whatever sickness there is out there, it's, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. We love, we accept, we minister life, don't condemn. You will be attacked. People will say, you are so close-minded that you don't believe anybody can just declare what their sex is. Forty years ago when I was in seminary, I didn't think I was going to have to teach physiology from the pulpit. I, we've heard a lot in the last two years, follow the science. Okay. Follow the science. What makes sense? Now, we don't have time to address all the complexities of, of the kind of environment kids are growing up in, the kind of peer pressure, the fact that there are teachers and faculty members pushing them towards examining and changing their gender. That all happens. We don't have time to address that. But we must be the church, first of all, the church that declares the truth. The truth. Speaking the truth in love. In love. So when this guy changed, what happened? What was the response of the people? This guy was radically transformed. It was fear. This guy was completely delivered. How did they respond? In fear. They asked Jesus to leave. Sometimes when we see the supernatural hand of God, we are afraid. It disturbs our equilibrium. It upsets our comfortable existence. These people had grown accustomed to this crazy driven man. They grew comfortable with his misery, with his drivenness. It was predictable. Do we do that? Well, that's just the way the world is. I, I'm, just don't bother me. Just let that go on. Comfortable. Jesus delivers a man and they say, get out of here. You know, Jesus does things outside the box. Jesus upsets predictability. These people rejected Jesus. They sent him away. They said, go away. I believe God is getting ready to do some very powerful and unusual things. In this church, in Eau Claire, and in our country. We need to expect it. Don't reject it. Don't be afraid. God's power, when God's power is released, he does some crazy things. This was one of the weirdest stories in the book of Luke. Well, you know what? I don't think we've seen anything yet. God's getting ready to do some things that we haven't imagined. 
beyond our ability to imagine or even think of what he's doing. Are we going to accept that or reject it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown your power over all the enemy had to offer. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that we would understand truth and be able to separate fact from fiction. And Father, that you would raise us up as a church of Jesus Christ that, that is compassionate and loving and redemptive, that we would look to redeem, not judge and not condemn, but to give people the only thing that can deliver them, to give them Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name.